currently in the heart of a sermon series that's ultimately going to carry us throughout the course of the summer, a series entitled Cruciform. That word simply means, if you look it up in Webster's Dictionary, it'll tell you it means having the shape of a cross, very simply. And so we talk around here about the cross as the great jewel of the Christian faith. It's multifaceted. As you spin a jewel, it shines with new brilliance and beauty. And so the goal of this series is very simple. It's to spin the jewel. It's to see the radiance of that which Jesus has accomplished for us one facet at a time. We, we decided on this sermon series title, Cruciform, Shaped by the Cross, because we believe that if we grab hold of what this series is meant to communicate, we're going to find our lives shaped by the cross in a number of ways. Doctrinally, for one, as we grow in our understanding of the various facets of the cross themselves, personally, as we grow in our understanding of how these facets of the cross matter in our own lives, communally, as we grow in our understanding of how these facets of the cross matter in our relationships with other followers of Jesus, and lastly, missionally, as we grow in our understanding of how these facets of the cross matter in our efforts to point more and more people to Jesus who don't yet know and love and follow him. And so with that being said, if you have a Bible, you can open up this morning to Exodus chapter 6, verse 6. Similar to the last few weeks, we'll be all over the Bible this morning, but this particular verse is significant in terms of what we're going after. Uh, And so we'll call this our root verse, and, and we'll move forward from there. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one underneath one of the seats in the row in front of you. You can grab one of those Bibles and open up to this morning's passage. If you don't own a Bible or the translation you have is difficult to track with, please take that Bible as the church's gift to you. Let me pray for us and we'll we'll dive in and we'll get going this morning. God, we need your help. This morning, I would venture to say that many of us in this room struggle with feelings of enslavement, with the feeling that though we've been declared free in Christ, that maybe functionally we don't feel free. And so I pray that you would help us to see the fullness of the beauty of this facet of the cross known as redemption, and that as a result of our time this morning in your word, that Uh, you would help us to leave this place and experience greater, deeper levels of freedom that are meant to be experienced for those who are in Christ. Holy Spirit, we can't do this without you. And so I pray that you would move, that you would open our eyes to see the beauty of this facet of the cross known as redemption. I pray that you would open our hearts to receive it deep down in the core of our being, deep down in the recesses of our affections. God, I pray that as we exit this place and as we venture out into the coming days, whatever you have for us, that we would get a feeling sense that we are truly free. Holy Spirit, would you work? Would you move in these moments? In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So as it stands, as of this morning, we have currently taken a look at three of the many facets of the cross that we're going to look at this summer. We looked in week one at the beautiful facet of justification, the significance of Jesus having satisfied the legal demands of our sin, having taken our guilty record upon himself and gifting us his perfect righteous record by grace through faith so that God the Father declares us righteous in his sight. That was week one. Week two, we looked at the beautiful facet of propitiation, the significance of Jesus having satisfied the wrath of God. 
He drank the cup of God's wrath down to the dregs and in doing so has changed God's wrath toward us into favor. Uh, Last week, we looked at the beautiful facet of the cross known as expiation, the significance of Jesus having cleansed us from the stain of sin on our souls, including the shame and defilement associated with the sins that we ourselves have committed as well as the sins that have been committed against us, that in Christ, both our sin and our shame have been taken away forever. This morning, we're going to spin the jewel one more time taking a look at the beautiful facet of the cross known as redemption. Just like those doctrines that we've looked at up to this point in the series, you're constantly surrounded by the doctrine of redemption simply by being part of this church. We sing this doctrine all the time around here. Lyrics like, He found the captives, broke the bondage of our chains. We have redemption through the price that he has paid. He gave his life to purchase freedom from the fall. Our mediator was the ransom for us all. Or, our deliverer, you are Savior. In your presence, we find our strength over everything, our redemption. God with us, you are God with us. Or, once bound by sin and shame, now slaves to righteousness, our faith perfected by his love. Or, perhaps my favorite, Charles Wesley's old hymn. He says, long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin in nature's mournful night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray, and I awoke the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off, Wesley says. My heart was free. I rose and followed thee. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Every one of these songs is a declaration of the beautiful facet of the cross known as redemption. And so as we've asked every week, what does this word mean? What is redemption? I'll offer you the following definition, and then I'm going to attempt to give you the biblical basis for the definition, which is going to carry us through most of this sermon this morning. Here's my definition of redemption. Redemption is the liberation from enslavement to sin by Jesus at the cost of his life out of love for us. Let me say that again. Redemption is the liberation from enslavement to sin by Jesus at the cost of his life out of love for us. I don't think... Most of us struggle with the first part of that definition, the the having to do with liberation from enslavement. That tends to make a lot of sense to us. After all, one of the great pictures of redemption in the Bible is the story of the Exodus, the leading of the Israelites out of Egyptian enslavement on a journey to the promised land. If you recall the story, closing out the book of Genesis, God's people were forced to enter Egypt as a result of a famine. And at first, the the relationship between the Egyptians and the Israelites was was a pretty cordial one. But over the course of time, that relationship changed so that the Israelites found themselves enslaved and oppressed. Exodus chapter 1 verse 8 tells us, Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. This went on for several hundred 
years in the land of, of Egypt. But beauty of the Bible is that it tells us that it didn't fall on blind eyes and deaf ears. That the Lord saw the affliction of his people. He heard their cry. In Exodus chapter 3, Moses' famous encounter with God at the burning bush, we're told, Exodus chapter 3, verse 7, Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. As the story goes, Moses and his brother Aaron went to Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, as ambassadors of the Lord, commanding Pharaoh to let God's people go. Pharaoh's response, you you want me to allow the Israelites to stop making bricks, which are being used to build monuments to my glory, to leave. And you want me to do that so that they can exit Egypt and glorify another deity? Not going to happen. And we're told that Pharaoh increased the heavy burdens of God's people over a period of time. But again, God had a plan. In Exodus chapter 6, the passage I had you turn to, Verse 6, we get these encouraging words from the Lord to his people. He says, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them. And I will, here's the word, redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. In one of the most famous scenes in all of the Bible, the Lord, in order to demonstrate his power, brought a series of plagues upon Egypt. The plagues went from bad to worse, culminating in the tenth and final plague, the death of the firstborn. God said to Moses, I'm going to bring about redemption, and here's how it's going to go down. I want you, my people, to take a lamb, and not just any lamb, a lamb without blemish, a lamb without defect. And I want you to kill that lamb without blemish and smear its blood on your front door. That lamb is going to act as your substitute. Judgment is coming upon the land, and no one is exempt. It's either the blood of the lamb or the blood of your firstborn son. And we're told that the Israelites did as God commanded, and that night God struck down all of the firstborn in the land of Egypt, those whose front door was not covered by the blood of the unblemished lamb. It's one of the the great pivotal moments in the story of the Exodus, which makes it one of the great pivotal moments in all of the Bible. The night that God established Israel's freedom from enslavement to Egypt. Over a million Israelites walking away from over 400 years of bondage. The the Exodus establishes one of the great motifs in Scripture. God bringing about freedom from enslavement and bondage. Exodus chapter 20 verse 2 goes on to tell us, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Now, here's where the story of the Exodus comes to bear in our own lives. You might read that and go, that was a long time ago. What does that have to do with me? Well, the reality is you and I are very much like Israel, enslaved not to Egypt, but rather the shackles of sin, handcuffed by sinful desires at the very core of our being, completely unable to to free ourselves from the chains that bind us in desperate need of God to show up in power and liberate us from our bondage, just like he did the Israelites so long ago. We need redemption. 
There's that word. If the facet of the cross known as justification deals with our guilt problem, if the facet of the cross known as propitiation deals with our fear problem, if the facet of the cross known as expiation deals with our shame problem, then the facet of the cross known as redemption deals with our bondage problem. The Apostle Paul says in Titus chapter 3, verse 3, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures. It makes sense that the Bible would use the image of slavery to explain the human condition. A slave is totally subject to the will of his or her master. If the master wakes up in the middle of the night and says, I want a midnight snack, the slave doesn't have the luxury of saying, I'll catch you in the morning, I'm sleepy. The slave's will is bound by the will of the master. Jesus himself said in John chapter 8, verse 34, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Sin is that person's master, in other words. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 19, Peter says it this way, For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. That is that person's master, in other words. And it's not just sex and drugs and rock and roll that we're talking about. There's addiction to work. There's addiction to praise. There's addiction to money. There's addiction to self-image, and I could just keep going and going and going with that list. Enslavement comes in a variety of shapes and sizes. We need a rescuer, someone to put the keys in the shackles, so to speak. Which brings me back to the definition I gave you earlier, part two of that definition. Redemption is the liberation from, the ensla- from enslavement to sin by Jesus that the author of Hebrews, for those of you who were around for the Hebrews series, you know this, he goes to great lengths to show that Jesus is the greater Moses. He's the greater redeemer. He's the greater deliverer. He's the greater rescuer, bringing about the liberation of his people, not from Egypt, but from the greater shackles of sin. Titus 2 verse 14 says it this way, Jesus Christ gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness, and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Romans 3.24, For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. 1 Corinthians 1.30, And because of him you are in Christ Jesus who became, became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. The word for redemption in all four of those verses I just shared with you comes from the Greek word lutrao, which means to loose. Jesus came to perform the greatest, most powerful work of liberation, of loosening that the world has ever known. He came to set the captives free, and that includes you and me. One of the... One of the most sobering thoughts as I sat with with this facet of the cross this week, when I think about this idea, this concept of redemption, there are a lot of people who have been deceived into thinking that they're free, unable to see the shackles of sin for what they truly are. The eternal dungeon of hell waiting for them to use that imagery and carry it to its finality. No hope of being freed from the chains of that eternal prison. Jesus Christ is the only hope for liberation. He's the only hope of being freed from the shackles of sin. If you're a Christian, when you were brought from death to life, the shackles were removed. 
The hands that were once shackled to sin, now free to be lifted in praise to your God. Thomas Boston, the great Puritan, says it this way. He says, the will is cured of its utter inability to will what is good. While the opening of the prison to them that are bound is proclaimed in the gospel, the Spirit of God comes and opens the prison door, goes to the prisoner, and by the power of his grace makes his chains fall off, breaks the bonds of iniquity wherewith he was held in sin so as he could neither will nor do anything truly good, and brings him forth into a large place, working in him both to will and to do of his good pleasure." Then it is that the soul that was fixed to the earth can move heavenward. The withered hand is restored and can be stretched out. You see that language that he uses being brought forth into a large place? That's a declaration of freedom. That's a declaration of being brought out of confinement into a large open place where we're free to worship God. That by the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit, God God gives us new taste buds to sense the bitterness of sin. God gives us a new power by which to put to death the deeds of the flesh and live to the things of God. Not, Not perfectly, but certainly progressively throughout the course of our Christian lives. The Apostle Paul says it this way, Romans 6, verse 6. He says, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer, here it is, be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. And he goes on to say, chapter 6 of Romans, verse 14, for sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. It will not function as your master anymore. To which you might ask, and I think it's a really good question, why does the victory over sin in my life seem to be so gruelingly slow? Is that not a lot of us in this room? That's my story. I don't know about you. I didn't wake up overnight when I became a follower of Jesus, all of a sudden the glorified version of myself. It's been a grueling, progressive fight to grow in Christ's likeness by the power of the Spirit. Why? I think that's a difficult question to exhaustively answer, and I don't want to give some sort of trite response that doesn't take into account the nuances of our struggles. And so if that's your question, and you want to go grab that cup of coffee to bat that one around, I would love to meet up with you and talk about that. I think there are probably some, some big kind of pillar answers to a question like that. Why is my growing in Christ likeness so gruelingly slow? Why does my feeling of freedom in Christ and the victory over sin? Why does it seem so slow? A few responses, I think. Maybe it's that God wants to teach us greater dependence upon him. Perhaps he's breaking us and freeing us from other sins, namely the sins of pride and self-reliance. Maybe it's because we've given in so many times that like a muscle that atrophies, our spirit becomes weak. I'm becoming increasingly convinced that one of the biggest reasons right up at the top of the list that we struggle to live as freed people in union with Christ is that we don't go far enough with this doctrine of redemption. We we take this imagery of freedom from enslavement and we say to people who are struggling with freedom in Christ, we say to them, the shackles have been removed. You don't have to live like this, which is absolutely true. But I'd argue that it doesn't go far enough Coming back to that definition of redemption, here's the other side of the coin of redemption. Redemption is the liberation from enslavement to sin by Jesus at the cost of his life. 
that our, our being freed from the shackles of sin did not come without a price. Coming back to that root passage, that root verse, Exodus chapter 6, verse 6. I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. That word redeem in Exodus chapter 6, verse 6, comes from the Greek word, or excuse me, the Hebrew word ga'al. It can be translated to redeem, but there's another translation of that word, which is to act as a kinsman. So we get this idea in the Old Testament of a kinsman redeemer. Best example found in the book of Ruth. To, to lose one's land for an Israelite was a devastating thing. And so a provision was made in the law of Israel declaring that if a man fell into debt and lost his land, his closest kinsman could buy back that land, restoring it to the family name. And the one who actually did that service of buying back the land was known as a kinsman redeemer. When you read the book of Ruth, what you encounter is the story of Boaz acting as a kinsman redeemer to Ruth which is a foreshadowing of the coming of the greatest kinsman redeemer, Jesus Christ, to redeem us at great cost. The point is, by the time you get to the New Testament, the concept of redemption doesn't just carry with it this idea of deliverance from enslavement and bondage. It carries with it this idea of deliverance from enslavement and bondage at a price, which helps to explain verses like Mark chapter 10, verse 45. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18. You were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. That our freedom from the shackles of sin came at great cost. Namely, the precious blood of Jesus. There's another Greek word in the New Testament that we translate redeem that helps to make a little bit more sense of this, this concept. It's the Greek word exagorazo. It, it can be translated to redeem or to buy out of the marketplace. Galatians chapter 3, verse 13, Paul uses this word. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. He bought us out of the marketplace of sin along with its curse. By becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. He uses the same word a chapter later in Galatians chapter 4, verse 4. He says, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, to buy out of the marketplace those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. These verses help to drive home the point that redemption is not just about liberation. It's about liberation at a price. James Montgomery Boyce says it this way. He says, Jesus entered into the marketplace of sin and at great cost of his own life purchased us for himself so that we might be set free in that glorious liberty which pertains to the children of God. That living as freed men and women is not just about remembering that the shackles have been loosed. It's about remembering that the loosening of those shackles cost Jesus his life. And, and that's not it. Like there's actually more to this. Coming back to that definition of redemption one last time, redemption is the liberation from enslavement to sin by Jesus at the cost of his life out of love for us. 
out of love for us. Perhaps the best way to make sense of that final piece of the definition is to consider the story of Hosea. The story of Hosea is really the story of God's redeeming love, redemption. I'm I'm really hesitant to give away the ending because I really want to preach it someday. I love the book of Hosea, but I'll do it anyway. The, The story of Hosea is essentially the story of a prophet called by God to marry an adulterous woman. God essentially says, she's going to be unfaithful to you. She's going to disgrace you, but I want you to pursue her and I want you to remain faithful to her. It's essentially a picture of God's faithfulness to Israel, even in the midst of Israel's unfaithfulness to God. And so Hosea marries a woman by the name of Gomer, not the most feminine of names I will give you. And she does exactly what God said she would do. She's unfaithful to her husband. She runs off with another man, another man who's incapable of caring for her like her husband. And we're told that God calls Hosea to do the seemingly impossible, to care for his wayward wife as she lies in the arms of another woman. You imagine that? Just put yourself in Hosea's shoes, showing up at some studio apartment, knocking on the door, person who's run away with your spouse answering that door, extending a basket of care items out of love for the one who's left you, your spouse's lover taking those items and then taking credit for them on your behalf. As the story goes, eventually Gomer becomes a slave. The Bible doesn't tell us how that came to be. Many believe it's because her lover died and she was without provision. Regardless, she ends up on the auction block as a slave. And based on the writings of antiquity, we know that slaves in Hosea's day were always sold naked. You can just imagine the feelings of hopelessness and worthlessness and shame in that moment for her. This woman stripped bare in the public marketplace, man after man placing his bid Meanwhile, we're told that God commands Hosea to go down to the marketplace and buy his wife back. And that's exactly what he does. And not so that he could enslave her, not so that he could hurt her, not so that he could kill her, but so that he could show her his never-ending love. And that's a picture of God's love. You can just picture Hosea clothing his wife in the midst of her nakedness and shame walking her away from this crowd of vulgar, crass onlookers and declaring his undying love for her. That's redemption too. Just as much as the picture of the Exodus in the Bible. And that's your story and it's my story. Coming back to James Montgomery Boyce, he says this. He says, we are the slaves sold on the auction block of sin. The world bids for our bodies with fame, Wealth, prestige, influence, and power. All the things that are the world's currency. But God sent the Lord Jesus Christ, his son, into the marketplace to buy us at the cost of his blood. It's not just that we've been liberated from the shackles of sin. It's that we've been freed from those shackles at great cost, motivated by the undying love of Jesus Christ for us. Yes, we need to be reminded. The shackles have been removed. You don't have to live that way. But we also need to be reminded, look at the purchase price of your freedom. Look at the undying love of Jesus for you. Both of those pictures of redemption together have the power to help us walk in freedom, to resist the devil. Which leads me to 
some of the personal implications of this particular facet of the cross. Similar to previous weeks, I can't get after this exhaustively as much as I would love to, so I'll just give you a few. Number one, by the Spirit, we really can live as a people freed from the bondage of sin. Something that slaves to sin are incapable of doing. At great cost to himself, Jesus has purchased our freedom. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19, Paul says, You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Paul assumes that you can do that, which means that the shackles have been freed. 1 Peter chapter 2, 16 says it this way, Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Live out the identity that you've been given as freed men and women in Christ. God has given us the power of his indwelling Holy Spirit. We don't have to put our hands back in the shackles that Jesus has already freed us from. We don't have to declare to Satan, you can be my master today. We don't have to do that. With those two beautiful pictures of redemption that the scriptures give us, we can know greater progressive freedom from sin. Not overnight freedom, but progressive freedom as we continue on throughout the course of our Christian lives. Number two, and this is a big one for the context in which we find ourselves, this Bible Belt, Southern cultural Christianity world. By the Spirit, we don't have to submit ourselves to the yoke of the new slave driver of legalism. There are a lot of professing Christians enslaved by self-made rules and regulations that wrongly bind their consciences. To the church in Galatia, those being deceived to embrace legalistic additions to the gospel, the apostle Paul says, Galatians chapter 5 verse 1, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Christ alone is our liberator, not Christ plus our own self-made rules. Victor Cooligan in his book, The Language of Salvation, he says, Legalistic systems inherently empty the gospel of grace. They subject their adherents to boasting and they cause them to be slaves to fear with worrying if they have done enough to merit salvation. I I couldn't tell you, growing up in Georgia, spending over three decades of my life in this state, I couldn't tell you how many people's stories, as I hear them share about how they became a Christian, is just the story of exchanging one slave master for another. The slave master of sin for the slave master of self-righteousness and legalism. That's not freedom. As those set free by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, we don't have to live under the new slave master of legalism. And thirdly, we can humbly humbly engage our non-Christian friends because the reality of this doctrine, this facet of the cross is that but for the grace of God, we ourselves would still be captives. Every one of us. It should break our heart that people around us are still shackled to sin. The gospel leaves absolutely no room for arrogance. This picture of Jesus leading us out of enslavement purchasing us from the marketplace of sin, it should bring great humility to our efforts to point our non-Christian friends and family members to Jesus. As I mentioned throughout this series, each of these facets of the cross will hit each and every one of us differently. For the past several weeks now, we've talked about how the cross deals with our guilt problem, our fear problem, 
our shame problem and now our bondage problem. If none of those things are the things you struggle with most, hang in there. This series is not over yet. In the meantime, as I've been saying for weeks now, each of these facets of the cross has both communal and missional value for each and every one of us. What do I mean by that? Well, communally, whether or not you struggle personally with feelings of bondage and enslavement, there are brothers and sisters around you who do. And this is the facet of the cross that speaks most readily to their hearts. And by you and I better understanding the doctrine of redemption and how it impacts people's lives, God can use you to breathe hope and life into the lives of other Christ followers. And so I'll ask, as I have every week, Has God brought any brothers or sisters into your life who struggle with a feeling of powerlessness to fight sin? What about those who struggle with defaulting to the enslaving yoke of legalism? You know anybody like that in the church? We can move toward those brothers and sisters with this facet of the cross known as redemption, reminding them that in Christ they've been liberated. Liberated from the shackles of sin and liberated from the shackles of self-righteousness. We've been freed from both. We can remind them that they were once on the auction block, naked and hopeless, and that Jesus, motivated by great love for them, purchased their freedom at the cost of his own life. Lastly, what about about the missional aspect of this facet of the cross known as redemption? How can we use this, this beautiful facet of the cross to evangelize? Well, as I've said every week, can unpack that in terms of the irreligious lost and the religious lost. To the irreligious lost, to those who feel powerless to overcome their vices, those who are shackled by various forms of addiction, we have a message of hope. The doctrine of redemption declares that Jesus is the great liberator of the captives, and he can and does free people from the shackles of addiction and powerlessness. And not only that, and this is for us, if you're a Christian, his love is far-reaching. Let me ask you, how many of us in this room would have considered Gomer to be beyond the reach of God's grace? How many of us would have just written Gomer off and just left her to fall into the hands of one of those crass onlookers? The doctrine of redemption presents us with a call to pursue any and all in the name of the liberating Jesus Christ. The blood of Jesus, you could say, is sufficient to purchase the vilest of sinners out of the marketplace of sin. There is no one whose sin is more powerful than the redeeming blood of Jesus Christ. And so we fight with the gospel to call people off of the auction block of sin and into the arms of Jesus. And to the religious lost, to those who have fenced themselves in with their unending list of self-made rules, living as slaves to fear with worrying if they've done enough to merit salvation, the doctrine of redemption declares that the blood of Jesus is sufficient to cover all of our sins. We can declare, just like Jesus, it is finished. Jesus paid, he paid it all. That by grace alone, through faith alone, in the finished work of Jesus alone, freedom and rest are there for the taking the religious lost. I hope if you've been around for several weeks now of this series that you're beginning to see the complexity and richness of the gospel of Jesus Christ that when we talk about the gospel as Jesus dying to save sinners, that is absolutely true. And it's appropriate to use that kind of language when we talk about the gospel. But Jesus dying to save sinners 
is a, a rich, complex, beautiful phrase that throughout the course of this series, I hope you see it coming to life over and over and over again that Jesus died to save sinners, meaning that he took their guilt upon himself so that they could stand righteous in the cosmic courtroom of God. That Jesus died to save sinners means that Jesus absorbed the wrath of God in our place so that God's wrath could be turned toward favor when he looks at us. That Jesus died to save sinners means that Jesus was shamed in our our place so that all of our sin and shame could be carried away and we could stand unashamed before the one who's made us and redeemed us. And per this morning's facet of the cross, Jesus dying to save sinners means that Jesus has put the keys into the shackles of sin and has liberated us so that we could lift our hand in praise of our glorious God. And we're just going to keep going in the weeks to come. So I hope you're encouraged enough to come back and keep exploring this with us. In a moment, we're going to continue to worship in a number of ways. We're going to worship through singing. We're going to sing to and about and for our great liberator, Jesus Christ. And I, I tell you, if ever there's a week to lift your hands as you sing, even the least charismatic people in the room, just as a declaration that these hands are not shackled to sin, just as, as a, a declaration that we've truly been liberated, if you come back next week and you don't do it because you creeped out, okay, I get it. But this week, man, just once, I'm free for a second. Then you can put your hands back down in your armpits and we can kind of get on with it. But just hallelujah, we're free. Can we just celebrate that with a visual picture of it this morning as we sing? And then there will be people in the back of the room to pray with and for you if you want that. Um, if you're currently wrestling with bondage and powerlessness over sin, if you feel like the, the slave driver of legalism, has hold of you and you want someone to pray for you to taste more of that liberation that comes in Christ, there will be people in the back of the room to pray with and for you. And lastly, we're going to worship through the receiving of communion. We take the bread here representing the broken body of Jesus, dip it in the cup representing his shed blood. Uh, if you're a Christian, that meal is for you. The communion tables will be open throughout the remainder of our service. You can come when you're ready. But before you do, I would encourage you to just stop and sit and, and get those two pictures of, of redemption in your mind. The picture of the Israelites being led out of enslavement to Egypt and the picture of Hosea buying Gomer out of the marketplace of sin off of the auction block and, and then take that to the cross and see Jesus accomplishing both of those things for your redemption. And then come and receive the elements when you're ready.